Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. Our guests on this episode of the Rhino Podcast are Lonnie Jordan and Jerry Goldstein from the band War. All day, 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 Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rhino Podcast. As always, we're joined by our good friend, John Hughes. John, how are you today? I'm good, Rich. I'm, I'm thinking about summertime, getting on the road, Ugh. putting together some playlists to go cruising. You know, cruising is a summer thing. Road trips, music is back. Hopefully people are getting out, taking some road trips to see some live music. But on the way, you've got to have some tunes in the car. And War is on the podcast today. I mean, Lowrider, it doesn't get any better than that for cruising music. Oh, yeah. And another song I like to uh, just blast with the windows down and have everybody look at me and give me that nod is uh, Baker Street, especially when it hits that sax solo. Oh, yeah. Come on. That's one of the most iconic sax parts ever. But da 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 da. That's come on. <laughs> exactly. And we know it's Jerry Rafferty. Well, there is a new Jerry Rafferty album coming. What's the story on this one? Back in 2006, Rafferty started to work on a new album. Of course, he sadly passed away in 2011, but his daughter, Martha Rafferty, went to complete the project started by her father, and it's culminated in a new Jerry Rafferty album called Rest in Blue. The result is a quintessential collection of blues, rock, and folk, and some of these demos used for the album date back as far as 1970, many of which Jerry had singled out as potential tracks for a new album. Jerry Rafferty's Rest in Blue is out digitally on September 3rd. I love albums like this because it's like you get to peek behind the curtain and and see the person's creative process. These are going to be probably stripped down, you know, because Jerry didn't finish them. But I love hearing the creative process from these great songwriters. This is going to be exciting. Well, obviously a labor of love for his daughter, Martha, who went and worked with musicians to finish those demos. So this, this is going to be a polished, real Jerry Rafferty record. I right. can't wait for it. It's going to be great. Another thing I can't wait for is Stone Temple Pilots' Tiny Music Songs from the Vatican Gift Shop Super Deluxe Edition. I hope you're sitting down, Rich. Do you know this album is 25 years old this year? La, 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 fingers <laughs> in my ears. 
I don't hear you. It's true. Uh, Tiny Music is 25 years old, so we've got a super deluxe edition to celebrate. It had three number one hits, Big Bang Baby, Lady Picture Show, and Trippin' on a Hole in a Paper Heart. I love this record. It's probably my favorite, my personal favorite STP record because it's so power pop and influenced by bands like Red Cross, who they were touring with at the time. This is a new three CD, one LP super deluxe edition. It has a newly remastered version of the album, unreleased early takes, alternate versions, and a full concert from 1997. It is out from Rhino on July 23rd. And that's right around the corner. And all of you SCP fans out there who have any of the previously released deluxe editions know how nice these sets are. So look for more of the same from STP later this month. They're beautiful, and they're beautifully done, and I can't wait for this one. I'm, I'm super excited, but that's it for this week. John, thank you very much. We'll see you next time. War is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, and the band is going back out on the road to celebrate, and there's a July 17th Record Store Day release in the works also. War, the vinyl, 1971 to 1975, It's an exclusive color vinyl box set celebrating the 50th anniversary and the first five classic albums from post-Eric Burden War. The set showcases War's best-loved albums, War, All Day Music, The World is a Ghetto, Deliver the Word, and Why Can't We Be Friends. Believe it or not, each album is being pressed on vinyl for the first time since its original release. Strictly limited to 5,000 copies worldwide exclusively for Record Store Day, and you can find a participating record store at recordstoreday.com. Original War members, keyboardist, vocalist, and songwriter Lonnie Jordan and producer-songwriter Jerry Goldstein joined us to give us the stories behind the songs from this classic Los Angeles band. Lonnie Jordan and Jerry Goldstein, thank you so much for joining us on the Rhino Podcast. Good. Pleasure. Yeah. I've been wanting to have you guys on for a while, so this is a real treat. You know, we've got War celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Can you believe it? Nope. (laughs) Yes, I I can believe it. (laughs) It's been that long. You guys have been working hard for a long time, and it's, uh, you yeah, know. Over 50 years, yep. Yeah, it's really quite an achievement. Over 50 years, yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Right, because you guys started years before the first album came out. Why don't you go back to the beginning, Lonnie, and tell us about the beginnings of this band. You, you're really going to ask me to remember? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's get your version of it, shall we okay. say. Well, I, you know, I, I have a lot of great memories, actually, and uh, I don't know if you want to call them flashbacks or whatever, but uh, the great memories uh, from the beginning uh, where I met Jerry, Jerry being a musician and, and being the, you know, the fact that he came from a band himself, we were able to connect and relate and other people knew him. And I just, uh, I felt comfortable because I knew 
he wanted to take us in the studio, not understanding what kind of band we were. You know, he always looked confused to me. I don't know if it was his face <laughs> or the drugs. <laughs> and it, anyway, <laughs> or, or when I say drugs, on my part, <laughs> I won't accuse anyone else. Anyway, uh, but he looked confused as well as we did because we were confused because of the fact we've never been in a studio, a real studio before. And the fact that he was sitting there all that time, now that I know what he was doing, twiddling a rubber bands around his thumb and his fingers, he was actually trying to figure out what to do with us because he started gradually understanding what and who we were about at the same time we did. Because <laughs> we had no clue. I'd never seen a, a real recording board in my life. <laughs> you know, yeah. and uh, by the time we grew together to do all that, you know, some magic came out and we never lost it. We well, kept it for a long time. That's my flashback. Well, let's step back just well, a little bit more. Jerry, when did you first see the band play? Yeah, I at the time I was I had a very large poster company that was doing merchandising for the Rolling Stones. Uh, you know, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, et cetera. And we were very, very, very successful. We basically created the modern merchandising business as we know it today by selling posters on the road and tour books. And one of my salesmen was a bass player who kept telling me about this band that he had, that I should come and see it. So he really got into my ear enough that I went, okay, we'll book a rehearsal studio. We booked SIR. And I, you know, they showed up and I went, I got there and they started to play me all this funky, Latin, bluesy, jazzy. I mean, they were everywhere. I mean, they, they had all these different kind of grooves going. Yeah. And all different kind of genre. So I go, wow, this is really interesting. You know, I don't quite know what to do with it at this point, but let me, let me think about how to deal with this. And I said, here, whenever you guys want to rehearse, I have a, a an account with them here. They'll just, you know, you just call up and book it and, you know, and rehearse and do what you got to do. And when you got something interesting, call me. I'll come down and listen, which is pretty much my MO, you know, for those days. Simultaneously with this going on, a guy named Eric Burden shows up in my office, who was a friend of mine for many, many years. And he's very disappointed with the whole industry. And he's going back to Newcastle to shovel coal. And, you know, he's done with the music business. He can't, you know, he just can't deal with it anymore. And I looked at him and I went, you know, I have a band that I've been working with that I can't figure out what to do with. But I have a hunch this could, this might really work. Why don't you go listen to him, you know? And it just so happens that night, they were playing a club called The Ragdoll. And in order to stay alive, they were backing Deacon Jones, the <laughs> professional football player, retired, uh, you know, Hall of Famer. With the and Rams. he was doing like, you know, one, from the Rams, one-handed push-ups, singing, oh, baby, you know. <laughs> and it was a Las Vegas review, and he is actually booked in Las Vegas. And they were going off to Las Vegas to do the show. And the band was backing him up. So we came out to the Ragdoll, Eric and myself, and a guy named Lee Oscar, who was living at Eric's house. 
and we watched the show, and it was kind of amusing in a way. And then we then the band jammed, and Lee actually got up and jammed with the band. And the next day, I called Eric, and I said, well, what do you think? He says, we're rehearsing at 3 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> and it went down to it. And like two weeks later, we were like, or whenever it was going out to work, the first gig was the was the um, Devonshire Downs. Yeah, Devonshire yeah, Pop Devonshire. Festival, 100,000 right. people. Wow. We're following Creedence Clearwater. And this is Eric Burden and War's first real gig, okay? Wow. <laughs> and that's how it started. And we held our own, and they had a minimal, you know, did a lot of blues and a lot of old songs. They never played an animal song, ever. Eric didn't want to sing them anymore, okay? So they created, Eric created a new repertoire for Eric Burden and War and a lot of jamming. That's how it began. When you guys went into the studio to record that first album, how many songs did you already have that you had written, and how many did you write new for that record? Everything was new. It was all, all created in the studio. Yeah, we basically created Spill the Wine because Lonnie spilled the wine into the console and destroyed the console. So we had Okay, wait a minute. Back up. So that really did happen? Did this really happen? <laughs> that absolutely, yeah, yeah. positively happened. Okay. It blew up. <laughs> and Lonnie, not by accident, knocked a cup of wine into the into the into the patch bay, you know, which is like the heart of the console. Okay? Yeah, right. And it took a while for it to like get in there and you know and destroy. But by the time we got back from lunch, we turned it on. It was crackling and everything. And Lonnie was very insecure about saying anything, so he didn't. <laughs> So, you know, thank God Wally Hyder had a new studio he was building up in San Francisco. So we moved, we changed studios from Studio C, where the Creedence Square Water was recording, and a lot of other superstars, into Studio B, which nobody ever recorded. Okay. It wasn't even finished. We had to put some rugs on the floor. It had a very live sound. And if you listen to Spill the Wine, it's pretty live. Yeah. And the first thing we did was Spill the Wine. Eric decided. We're going to do that song. We jammed it. We jammed the groove, the Latin groove that Lonnie put together. And, you know, and, and that was it. And that was the first thing we did up there. Take the wine, take that girl. The wine, take that girl. The wine, take that girl. Oh, 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 oh. The wine, take that girl. Take that girl. Yeah. It's all yours. jammed a whole bunch. We played a whole bunch of stuff that we had played on the road. We also cut a lot of the second album mm-hmm. in that set, in those in that weekend session too. Wow. We not only cut the first album, but we cut like probably half the second album because we'd been on the road for about a year before we actually recorded. So we had a lot of stuff that we had jammed into songs. And that's that was the beginning of Eric Burden and War in the first album. Mother Earth was just an extension of so many other blues that we were creating on our own with Eric. You know, so Eric was basically, for me, Eric was a, a, a movie star portraying a part and we were playing the music behind this 
uh, action. Yeah, Eric was an actor on stage. Yeah, yeah, true. yeah. And we were, we we did the music behind, what? like the score. When it all is up, you got to go back to Mother Earth. She ain't wait. When it all is up, you got to go back, way back to... The best front people are actors in a way, aren't they? You have to get into that mindset. You have to get in that mindset. Yeah. Eric could jam vocals like most people could jam music. Oh, that's cool. And that's what the magic of all this was. Yeah. Well, even better, Eric was just like like a rapper, like Common, like a Snoop Dogg who could just get up and improvise and rap off the fly. That's how Eric was singing. Wow. Wow. And and speaking, I mean, if you think about it, Spill the Wine was probably one of the first rap songs. (laughs) You know? It's true. When you think about it. Interesting. You do have the spoken word parts. Yeah, it makes it very unique, for sure. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Eric was like a jazz singer singing rock and roll. Yeah, and and ja- right. Latin jazz and Latin jazz, which was spill the wine, a Latin jazz rap song. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Totally different from anything that had ever been out. You know. Oh, absolutely. It took us a long time to break the record, but we finally broke the record after like twenty weeks. Well, I mean, War really doesn't sound like any other band. There's, there's, a, there's not that many bands out there that you can say, oh, well, that's War. Or, you know, The Doors are another L.A. band that absolutely, there's no other band that sounds like The Doors. War is that way. That's true. War is that way, for sure. When you guys were in the studio recording, did you try to get everything live in one take? What was your approach? We jammed a lot. (laughs) A lot. We did a lot of jamming. (laughs) How many tapes did we use? (laughs) We we used a lot of tape, okay? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I used to say tape is our cheapest commodity, okay? Just keep going. We'll record it all and we'll figure out what we got later. Yeah. And yeah, they yeah. were so creative in the studio, you know, and on stage too. But in, in the studio, they were amazingly creative. I used to, you know, they, we'd put down jams. I'd come up with titles, you know, that just so it, so I could mark it and say, this this sounds like something and I put a title on it, you know, and yeah. then we move on. And I used to use two machines in the studio. Because I didn't want to lose anything, so when one was running out of tape, I'd start the other tape. Uh, and, and, and you had a two-track going in case those two ran out <laughs> while the engineer was changing tapes over. You know, in order to get to start from scratch, we always had a two-track going. Also, so we wouldn't yep. lose anything. By the way, if, if you listen to some of these some of these original jams, you'll hear Lonnie talking into the microphone, telling him to change keys or change move over to be flat, but you know, it's like, he's like directing them. Wow. Or countdowns. We were a one take band. If you I didn't catch that. it the first time, it was gone. You're not going to get it. Right? <laughs> wow. right on. Well, you know, the songs, a lot of your songs have that feel. It's just, it's, it's not like you've been beating it into the ground or flogging a dead horse. It sounds like you guys are getting it while it's really fresh. You know, no score. They made me. They made me become the greatest editor of all time. Okay? <laughs> I used to call myself the rearranger. The you know? rearranger. Because <laughs> every time we we did something, 
I, I always put the vocals down before I cut it. So the vocals were in parts that, you know, in certain different parts of the, of the track. And then when I'd mix it, then I'd start editing to make it commercial. It was kind of, kind of amazing. Okay. Joe Vuss, Joe Vuss crazy. Yeah. He's a rearranger. I call him the real danger. <laughs> Living with a perfectionist. <laughs> yeah. I was always a perfectionist and it was very difficult to be a perfectionist in a, with a jam band. Okay. <laughs> but we managed and I managed to get the skill into another level. Yeah. And well, they, they forced me to do it. You know, yeah, well, you, you, he understood, uh, Jerry understood that that was our perfection, you know, to, to jam and to, uh, to, to like rolling film. You didn't. If you didn't get the first take, then it's lost. But that was our perfection. That was what we had. That was the for. magic. Yeah, we could never that was duplicate. The real magic, right? Yeah, we could right. never duplicate what we did. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's true. Well, you get something unique that way. Yeah. When we finish the record, they have to relearn the songs. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Totally. Interesting. Really interesting. We had to, we had to simulate ourselves. <laughs> yeah, well. which was difficult because some of the equipment that we used all, also was uh, part of the creative uh, 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 moment, you know, because a lot of the equipment that I use, a lot of the keyboards, like, for instance, the keyboards that I used on the Cisco Kid, Why Can't We Be Friends on Lowrider, uh, only existed during those three songs, and I, and then it died which was never, I could never find it again because they stopped making it. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so that was it. With that, I used it on stage a couple of times. It died. And that wow. was it. No more. Well, it's got to be easy for you today, though, the way it is. To, you know, you can replicate any keyboard sound you want and on a synthesizer, which is kind of well, nice. Well, I've, I've never been able to find that particular sound. Oh. So I just said, Forget it. Let me just use acoustic piano. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Well, you guys went out on tour with Eric after that album came out. And is it true that your first gig in the UK was playing London's Hyde Park? Yes. Wow. wow. Yeah, and and the new and the new musical express, which was a big music magazine, said Eric Burden and War Best Live Band Ever as a headliner. Wow. Okay. Wow. Because they were like no other band that anybody would ever heard. I mean, and they did two-hour and three-hour shows, you know? Yeah, yeah, right. And everybody up on that stage was really amazing, and it levitated. Wow. Yeah, every time we would play, Eric would always come up with these extra story, these lyrics that took you through a journey, you know? And, and he would end up... Um, from from the beginning to the end, sometimes we never played any of the songs that we rehearsed or recorded. We would just go into uh, uh, a movie. A groove. And Eric knew yeah. exactly where to go. We go into a groove or a jam, and Eric would start talking and start rapping and start singing and start yeah. taking, telling a story. I mean, if you listen to Tobacco Road, you know that's an amazing story. You know, well, you know, let, let me just say that there's been a lot of people to cut Tobacco Road and nobody's version of that song has the feel that Wars does.
or the That's extra right. story that yeah. Eric put in there. Right. You know, we took it. We took it to a jazz, Afro jazz. I would say Broadway play. Just about. Wow. You know, you have to see it live to really understand it. Besides the years, you'd have to see it too. Then I heard my wife say, "It's all right, baby. I understand. Go ahead and do your thing." There was nowhere I could run. I heard my father say, I understand, son. Go ahead and give it. It's yours to give. Then I heard my mother say the same thing. Yeah, Eric was very descriptive. Oh, yeah. Animated. Very animated. There, you know, Not many vocalists that can improvise that way and, and you know, produce something consistently like he could he's like one of a kind he really yeah and every time i listen to some of the stuff that we we've done in the past uh with eric uh it kind of i i mean i'm impressed because i'm saying to myself dang how old was i (laughs) you know was i on something (laughs) or where was i mentally where was my state of mind yeah Yeah, what was my state to be able to play like i did and to be able to create without music paper or lyrics to read. I mean, where was I and where was the band? How, we, our communication. They were really connected. I mean, it was an amazing thing to watch. I, I, got so, I, I got so crazy watching it at the beginning that I built a remote recording truck to record it all. Wow. Because they were creating new stuff on stage every night. Right. And I was losing it. You know, so eventually we built our own remote recording truck and even when we went to Europe on the 71 tour, I had a, I had a, I had it in boxes, you know, really remote. And I could set up in any dressing room and do live 16 track recording. So we have that whole European tour recorded live. We have most of the American stuff recorded live and nobody's ever heard that stuff. And one of the things we want to do now is start to put it out in some form, you know, even if it's just streaming, you know, uh, do our own radio, do our own radio show, and maybe do once a week. We do a special, uh, you know, concert, you know, and, yeah. and play one one. We have probably fifty to one hundred of. Something that I wanted to ask, and this is a great time to ask this since you brought this up. I read that a lot of your master tapes perished in the Universal Fire. So no, none of ours. Really, none of ours. Excellent. That's great news, because you must have countless hours of thousands tape. and thousands and thousands of tapes. Excellent. That's how you meet between the, the recording yeah. studio right. and the remote recording truck. I was like a recording junkie, you know. We yeah. just recorded everything because it was worth recording. Because yeah. everything every night the show was different from the night before. Yeah, you know, yeah. and there could be new jams and new songs. You know, that you just created in the dressing room would show up on stage and stuff like, you know, it was totally crazy. Glad they survived. That's great. So we didn't store anything there. Yeah. We, okay. Well, we've luckily. always stored our own stuff around with ourselves. Talk about a tragedy. Yeah, that was a tragedy. From one tragedy to another, you guys played a show on September 18th, 1970 at Ronnie Scott's in London, which is a very famous jazz club. It's yep. notable for being the last public performance by Jimi Hendrix. He sat in with you guys. What was that night like? It was, it was great. It was, uh, it, first of all, for me, it was an honor 
to play with him. And he, you know, he just seemed so, so normal at the time, me being young, you know, a musician, because I, I, I didn't really accept him as a superstar back then. I accepted Jimi Hendrix like a B.B. King, Lowell Folson, mm-hmm. uh, Willie Dixon, or just someone from uh, from the hood. That's right. how I accepted him. And I didn't know till later on, I mean, even moreover after his death, how much of a superstar he really was. I, ju- I just didn't know. I didn't know too much of anything. To be honest with you, all, <laughs> all I knew was get on stage and make a movie. <laughs> That's all I knew. That was my life. I was married to that. I met Janis Joplin. I had no idea who she was. And uh, she scared me because she was just a little bit too aggressive for me. You know, just like Jim Morrison. I met him. He was aggressive. And I, I didn't know. I didn't know who these people were. Mm-hmm. Because I was young, dumb, and full of fun. I just wanted to go in the studio and make music. You know, yeah. I knew who Sly was. I knew who James Brown was. I knew who Chuck Berry was. I knew who the Everly Brothers were, Elvis Presley. But I didn't know the '70s groups. All those people, Lydia Pence, they were all hanging out at Jerry's house in the pool. I had no clue who these people were. They were all my clients in the poster company, and they would come over to the house all the time and hang out. And, you know, Eric and War would come. Eric was living at the house. So, you know, Eric and I shared this mansion in Bel Air. So, you know, we always had people over all the time. Jimmy was a, was a really good friend of both of ours. In fact, I helped discover him in the first place and knew him from the beginning. And, you know, it was that's why the guys in War, you know, were friendly with these guys and knew these guys. I mean, one day I remember Jimmy came over to the house with his guitar case and his guitar. And Lonnie was playing the piano and everybody was playing ashtrays and whatever, you know, some kind of percussion instrument. He never took the guitar out of the case. He just played the case. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. I mean, that's how rhythmic this band yeah. was. Yeah. Okay. He right, understood. Right. It was infectious. Yeah. 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 And, and if anyone really understood uh, this band besides Jerry producing us, Jimmy did. He was probably, yes. besides Eric and Jerry, he was the only one who really understood this band. Here's the $60,000 question, though. Did you guys record that night at Ronnie Scott's? No. We didn't that... record officially, but some guy was in the audience with a little portable tape recorder. And then we found him, and at the end of the night, we gave him 20 pounds for the tape. So, yes. We have a tape of Jimmy Hendrix playing with us. Oh, you guys got to get that one out. Man, you got to get that one out. I know he died the next day tragically. And I know that Eric, I know Jerry, you and he were both good friends with him. But it it must have affected the band pretty heavily when they found out he passed just the very next day. Everybody was in shock. And that was the time that I found out how really of a, how big of a superstar he was. And then that happened. And, you know, it's just a lot of things was going in my mind because I... First of all, flying over to England in a big 747 that I, I didn't think could even fly or lift from the ground to get there. And, and here I am saying, oh, my God, I got to fly in this big blimp all the way to England. How long is the flight? You know, and then that happened. And then we got to fly back. And then I it's just too many depressing things that was going uh, in my mind, going on in my mind at that time when uh, Jimmy died. Yeah. And um, I just uh, figured that, dang, 
and I want to belong in this music business. I want people to love me like they loved him. But I don't want to have to uh, uh, die to do that. I want to be around to see all this. And, you know, and it's it just, it, it, it scared me. Mm-hmm. It, it scared me. Ironically, the song that Jimmy played on was Mother Earth. Yeah. <laughs> when it all is up, you got to go back to Mother Earth. Wow. That's what wow. That's, played. The song he played. that's the last <laughs> song he played publicly. Yeah. Yeah. 45 with minutes. Us that night in Ronnie Scott's. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. We were Ronnie Scott's all week. I mean, we, we were playing for the whole week there, you know? Gotcha. But he showed up a couple of times and the second time he showed up, he was ready and he got on stage and played with us. He bought his guitar and that's when we jammed for 45 minutes. might've been longer. We just jammed about that. and jammed. About 45 minutes. Yeah, and then and then it was early Thursday morning is when, you know, I kept hearing the phone ringing in one of you guys' room and just all kind of stuff. And Eric was tripping out, walked out of his room uh, with a, a towel over his face, crying. I said, what the devil is going on? What's happening here? You know, I'm I'm in a state of mind. I'm in a trance because I probably did some drugs in it. It's just that it all scared. My heart was beating fast and everybody was panicking. I, I thought I was being paranoid, but something did really happen. Yeah. And, and that's what happened. So, Tragic. you know, it blew my mind. I can yeah. only imagine. Only imagine. So after that, you guys did do the second album with Eric, and, but he left in the middle of the European tour following that. What happened? That was the 71 tour. After Spill the Wine was a huge hit and Tobacco Road was a big hit. Yeah. We went on tour and broke every record you could break in Europe. And we would do like three and four and sometimes five-hour concerts. Wow. People wouldn't let us off the stage. And I've got all of that recorded, by the way, on 60 track. Wow. And when we got to England, Eric was exhausted. This is an interesting story. And decided he was going home. So he jumped on a plane, didn't tell anybody, right? We had a couple of days off, and then we had the first show was in Brighton. I will never forget it. And no Eric. Hmm. And we go down on the bus, you know, and we go, you want, we're going to play this, you know, so let's go figure out a set to play, you know, mm-hmm. who's going to sing what. <laughs> so, you know, and, you know, in the, in the long shows, everybody jams. So everybody, you know, even in the blue stuff, like sometimes you play a song for 20 minutes everybody took a jam all the way to the top and came down and then the next guy jammed so that was a lot of our show is musical you know so we decided that we're going to keep a lot of that and we created a show which was recorded by the way and it's really the first war without eric show ever done you know and i never released that either but they would play songs like mashed potatoes usa which was from the original creators days before war and but the show was amazing. We offered people their money back if they didn't want to stay. The place sold out. Nobody took their money back, and we did four encores. Wow! At that moment, I knew that we had that war could do it on their own too. And by the way, Eric came back. Eric came back. We played Manchester and whatever, and we finished the tour. And we came back to America and did some more shows. But it was the beginning of them and me and everybody saying, "Well, maybe we got a second act here," you know. Maybe yeah. we have war by themselves. Right. You know? And we would do war and Eric Gordon and war. War would play a set. 
And then Eric would come on and do Eric Burden and walk. And that's how it started. You know, right. where war would be, you know, develop. And then we made a deal with United Artists and did our first album, which was an interesting album, but not very commercial. And it was everybody got off and everybody did what they wanted to do. And I sort of let everybody just do what they felt they should do. And, you know, released the record. It did okay. Didn't do great. And then the second album was all new material, starting with all the music and slipping into darkness. And that was the beginning of war jamming in the studio, creating, writing together in the studio, really working like, like all the hits. Yeah. And that's when the hits began. Yeah. Let's talk about slipping into darkness for a minute. That's definitely a fan favorite. What a great track. Another jam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just a long jam. I think the whole, I think it's about a 30 or 40 minute jam. There's a slipping in a slipping part two. <laughs> and so that's another, that's another one that you had to edit down. I assume that was my first create a song out of a jam editing job. There you and go. I'd never done that before. It's always great to hear the stories behind the songs, and I had no clue that Spill the Wine was based on Lonnie actually spilling a glass of wine into a recording console. That's some expensive creativity there. That was part one of our conversation with Lonnie and Jerry from War. Next episode is part two with a bunch of the band's hits and the stories behind them. Take care, and we'll see you next time on the Rhino Podcast. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.